Welcome to Sonosphere. Today we are featuring on Sonosphere Florence B. Price, African-American composer from Little Rock, Arkansas, just across the river there. We're excited to present Florence B. Price today. Too often, Black, Indigenous, and female composers are left out of the classical music conversation. Today we are happy to have Dr. Douglas Shadle and Maeve Brophy talk with us about Florence B. Price, her life, her work. We will also hear from Karen Walwyn. We'll talk about the biography of Florence B. Price. And we'll also hear from A. Corey Hill, talking a little bit about black modernism and so much more right here on this episode of Sonosphere. So stay tuned. In 2009, hundreds of Florence B. Price compositions were recovered from an abandoned house in Southern Illinois. Throughout the past decade, these pieces began to be transcribed and distributed throughout the world. And before 2011, only one recording of her symphonies existed. And that was a recording of her first and fourth symphonies by the Fort Smith Symphony way back in 1933. Lucky for you, there are a number of recordings of her works in the world and you will be able to hear a bunch of those pieces today. Florence B. Price's works pull from Negro spirituals and music of the times. The Southern influence is apparent with jubilee dances and bouncy rhythms drawing you to Arkansas and the natural beauty that exists there. She was also influenced by Russian composer Antonin Vorok. When she moved to Chicago, her compositions still reflected her Southern roots. And as you will learn, she kept an ear to the ground on the happenings of the music scene during her time in Chicago. She was much more than a composer. She also taught many students, including Margaret Bonds, a well-known black pianist and composer. Her impact on the music scene through her students is an area of scholarship that hasn't quite been followed um, very well. And I have a suspicion given that kind of a couple of key pianists in the city, including a pianist at the Savoy Hotel, you know, the famous Savoy uh, ballroom there in Chicago, uh, was one of her students. Um, I think that her her legacy is even far larger than it will become uh, because of her compositions. You know, when we, if you were to do a kind of genealogy of her students and this sort of thing, um, we could see that she had a very lasting impact on musical life in this country, particularly among African-American musicians, you know, certainly not limited 
to them either, because, you know, as these folks uh, teach students and their students teach students, I, I bet the racial makeup uh, changes over time. Sure, I'm Douglas Shadel, and I'm an associate professor of musicology at Vanderbilt University's Blair School of Music. This is something that many people have said, but it's worth saying again that, that representation matters. Um, knowing the, the history of real people, um, the struggles they went through, but also their successes, um, the, the very interesting things that they did to, to move through life, and I think the more that Florence Price's name is in the air, uh, especially for young people, certainly that's a way to help help folks feel welcome in in this this business that we're in. My name is uh, Karen Walwyn, and I'm a concert pianist and composer and uh, have become most recently engaged with the life and music of Florence Price, Florence Beatrice Price. And I'm very excited to be a part of the um, program today because there's so much um, to learn about her, her life, uh, the struggles, there are questions that are still unanswered today. Um, you know, the disappearance of her music and the rediscovery of her music. What happened in those those years? Those uh, over thirty years of the disappearance of her music. So it's it's an amazing American story, and I think it's a very important story for our country, especially at this time. It's important to uh, take a look back at the times just before her birth. There is a reference in a program that I came across that says she is of mixed background. And so I'd like to clarify what exactly her background is um, made of. Both of her grandparents were born as mulatto. Mulatto today is an offensive term, but back in those days, it referred to the black mother who would give birth and the child was fathered by a white slave master. As a result, her mother, Florence Irene, was quite fair-skinned. During this period of time, just after the emancipation, there was a period of reconstruction and there was an excitement in Little Rock that Blacks will now have the freedoms as whites, pursue jobs, to pursue education, to have a sense of uh, equality and respect um, to their counterpart, white, uh, whites in society. And for a time, that that actually seemed 
to look possible and and probable. Her father was a dentist. Um, he practiced dentistry um, starting in Chicago. And unfortunately, the, the Great Fire of Chicago forced him, as did 100,000 others, um, to flee to um, other states. Dr. Smith moved to Little Rock. He was able to establish a very successful business. His wife, Florence Irene, had grown up in a home in Indianapolis where she was afforded piano lessons. She had a, a wonderful education. Uh, they lived in a, a beautiful home. Uh, Florence Irene was especially interested in maintaining her, her stance in life. And what was that? Well, it was to preserve as much of what was perceived as her appearing to align with white society. She taught her daughter, Florence Beatrice, and by the time she was four, she had already played her first concert. This concert would afford opportunity for Florence Beatrice to perform for John Boone, one of the first black concert pianists to gain national status. And he would later be one of her um, continued supports in the music field. She, she had her first composition published at the age of 11. Florence's mother, Florence Irene, was very instrumental in making sure that she taught her daughter certain skills such as leadership, organization, and learning to be independent, which would help Florence later on in her career. But the conflict would start, especially as cited in uh, Raylan Brown's book, The Heart of a Woman, the degree of how much her mother would try to suppress her Black culture. graduate high school at the age of 14 as valedictorian. And so two years later is when she would arrive at um, New England Conservatory. During her three years at NEC, culturally speaking, she broke a lot of boundaries. It was in her third year that the question of race comes in, race, racial identity, because it was in her third year that her program would state her address as Pueblo, Mexico. There had been some conversations, one would assume from her mother, that it was best to try to pass for her success. Um, and so for that last year, apparently she may have tried to hide her, her, her heritage, but what's never hidden it's never hidden in her music. It's never hidden in her music. And in fact, this was the time when um, Dvorak had just 
come to the United States and was um, encouraging composers to utilize the folk material that are here and try to break away from the traditional structures and take advantage of what what's here. And so Florence had the opportunity to learn from the inspirations from her teacher, George Chadwick. Yeah, I mean, she is she's thinking about multi multi-dimensional ways of expressing who she is as a musician and artist, including with her southern roots. On the subject of plantations, um, the spiritual, um, the harmonies, there's a certain element that I hear frequently. For example, is the plagal cadence that four to one, uh, the four one is tradition in the black church. You sing through the hymn and uh, you sing amen. I hear that a lot throughout her works. I hear a lot of uh, falling thirds, falling fourths, falling fifths intervals in melodically, which remind me of uh, how a lot of the um, singers would sing. And of course, um, characteristically, she includes the Juba dance, which stems from the songs that slaves dance to, um, particularly in the, in the happier occasions. I think that the, her sense of location was was absolutely important. Now, how that played a role in thinking about uh, how she was composing is a bit more of a complicated question because um, I think what what listeners might hear in the first symphony is the kind of emotional uh, substance of a repertoire known as the sorrow songs, as kind of a subset of the spirituals repertoire. Uh, in a minor key, kind of slower unfolding of melodic shapes and that sort of thing. Um, but then at the same time, in the second movement, you have uh, references to hymnody, uh, organ hymns, that kind of thing, really beautiful chorale style uh, moments in the second movement. Then in the third movement, uh, she calls it a juba dance, which is an old, um, you know, African-based, African-derived uh, style of dancing and playing music. Uh, in the South that she might have heard directly as a child or even as an adult too, but uh, certainly harkens back to Southern roots. And so, you know, when it comes to this question of influence in a composer, uh, there's a fine line there between taking something you've heard and sort of reworking it into a piece versus using material that you self-identify with uh, and creating an, a, a medium of self-expression. Uh, I think all that's present to a degree in that first symphony, uh, and, in, and of course, in many of her pieces. Um. 
Price openly acknowledged uh, her Southern roots. And thinking about her biography, one of the most significant choices that she made in her life uh, after she graduated from the New England Conservatory in Boston was to move back to Arkansas. And she lived in Arkansas for another uh, roughly 21 years and between 1906 and 1927. Thinking about her experiences in the South as a child, uh, when Jim Crow was was becoming solidified, and then after the, her three years in Boston, when Jim Crow was fully fledged and and say race relations became increasingly violent and uh, you know threatening for African American families, including hers. I want to bring you back to her home, where her mother could afford a beautiful Ivers and Pond piano. Ivers and Pond, I looked up and discovered, well, this is one of the the most exclusive and expensive instruments one could buy. That's the kind of instrument she had in her home. Now she's being exposed to um, having to ride in the back of the cars, on the train, dirty environments, and, and treated subhumanly. And it was a shock. back in Little Rock historically brings a whole new level of darkness. We're looking at early 1920s. Her husband, Mr. Price, is actually a very successful lawyer. His office was downtown, right in the center of the heart of the Black community and was located next to the um, Mosaic Templars. The Mosaic Templars is a uh, African-American heritage building. It was also a place where they had um, performances because there's a beautiful stage. I'm pointedly describing this location for a reason. Florence's home was just about a half a mile away from her husband's law practice. Sadly, there was a disturbance that would lead to a black man being suspected as having assaulted a white woman. This would instigate a mob that wanted to hunt this black man down. So authorities were able to safely hide this black man because it turned out that he was absolutely innocent. 
tensions were running high and they had to find someone to pin it on. They found someone, John Carter. John Carter, as I understood when I visited Little Rock, which is not exactly expressed in the newspapers, he was assisting a white woman with her uh, horse and, and carriage. And these people decided to turn that situation into he's accosting her. They gunned him down with over a hundred bullets in his body. They tied his body up to a truck and they dragged his body for over five miles down the main artery of Little Rock, Black Mountain of Little Rock. And they stopped right at the intersection where Mr. Price's law office adjacent to the Mosaic Templars stood. They took his body, John Carter, and they put gasoline on his body. They hung his body up on a traffic light, his charred body hanging right there, just doors away from where Florence Price lived. Florence Price took her daughters and they, and they fled to Chicago. It's chilling to think about living in that kind of environment. So when you look at the whole picture, she grew up in something so incredibly beautiful and in many ways safe, um, intellectually progressive, um, economically progressive, to suddenly fleeing such horrific and tragic times how her music can be so incredibly beautiful, poetic, and and descriptive without any sense of tragedy. It's it's music that speaks of pride. Again, I stress she is proudly demonstrating her heritage. She's not hiding. In, in the 20s, it, it was the era of Jim Crow and <clears throat> lynchings had begun in Little Rock. So she moved her family to Chicago. And this was around the time that she began composing as well, because she was trained as a pianist and organist. The seven descriptive pieces was written around the time of that move. So it's actually a very early work of Miss Price. My name is Maeve Brophy. And I am a concert pianist based out of Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up in Memphis, left and came back. I did spend nine years working in Nashville as a collaborative pianist, mostly. African-American spiritual, as well as harmonies and melodies that sound like they could have been a spiritual, are very pervasive in her work. And it really didn't matter where she lived. That influence was just there in all of her music. The more recent piece that I worked on 
the six piano pieces written in 1947 does actually have a lot more harmony from African-American vernacular musical language. I would say the pieces from 1927 are more pedagogical and more influenced by jazz and jazz of the 20s. And the pieces from 1947 are more influenced by African-American spirituals. In her case, one of the most challenging aspects of thinking about her compositional output is accessing what music she might have known at any given time. Um, the South Side of Chicago, where she was living, was an ultra vibrant musical space. I, I hope, as most people know, I mean, it was, you know, budding jazz and blues and all kinds of other sorts of things. And uh, some of her students were well known jazz players uh, in the city. And, but I think that she was aware of things like the harmonic experimentation that was going on in jazz. Uh, she might've been aware of say Duke Ellington's music, for instance. I mean, you know, by this time, it's certainly uh, widely known, uh, his kind of experimental stuff. Um, and then, you know, whether she went to Chicago symphony concerts and heard uh, some of the white modernist composers that were frequently on those programs during the time, uh, the thirties and forties were a very progressive moment for the Chicago symphony. So it's like, you know, you could kind of map out the musical landscape of Chicago during the 30s and 40s and see you know, it's very rich, possibly had access to just a, a huge range of music that I think was was in her ears and then match that with her, you know, boundless creativity. And you're going to get some really, really fascinating stuff. still so important for us to have the context that Price lived in and worked in because it exposes us to so many rich pockets of classical music practice in Black communities in the United States. My name is A. Corey Hill. I'm a PhD candidate at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I am writing a dissertation on the three concertos of the composer Florence B. Price, and specifically looking at them within a framework to see how she's participating in these bigger conversations around a Black concert tradition within the New Negro modernist movement. With Price's music, she drives home the fact that there are so many different sonic expressions of America, not just not, not only Black America or white America, but just America and our place within it and our place in it in relation to other people. I hope that is a train of thought that someone takes up and really writes through, because that, that's like an ex excellent question, yeah, how does this, not, not even complicate, but how does this change how we understand um, the sound of American classical music during this period? These genres, especially spirituals and juba dance, for some folks, they're like outdated, outmoded, you know, this is not the direction to go in, but for her, it still is. And 
and because it was speaking to something not only with her background as a southern Arkansanian woman where you know that was part of the soundtrack of her upbringing um but also as a black woman as a black woman that is thinking about you know what is the place of the past and the present and, and just how even with some aspects of the past that make us uncomfortable that doesn't mean that we have to like totally let them go we still it is still important to remember and re-engage with You mentioned how the tragedy doesn't really seep through in the lines of her music. Um, the, you know, when you're listening to the first symphony, like you said, it's a, it's, I feel like the everything but the Jubid dance is, it's almost like this fantastical journey. And if I wasn't familiar with Arkansas and the landscape, you know, it does bring me to Arkansas. It brings me to that and that journey. And then the Juba dance seems triumphant. Like you made this journey, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a fun celebration. With her trying to break the barriers, do you think that she purposefully avoided adding the tragedy? That was her person and that was her style. But I, I get the sense that this was her. When I look at um, some of the smaller piano works, she wrote a lot of pieces that were teaching pieces, but she wrote a lot of pieces that were uh, performance pieces, and they were all so very delicate. Schumann comes to mind. Schumann's uh, Kinderzenen. Those those works are precious. Each one has its own character, and the way in, in her music, likewise, it's each title practically is visualized when you look at the score the actual score itself you can see picturesque uh, ideas of what that title is for example rocking chair is the title of one piece and you actually can see how the writing does imply the rocking chair and then when you hear it of course you hear that um She's writing pictures. She's painting pictures. Several of them have these sort of fun pedagogical names. The first one's called Little Truants, what you call a kid who's skipping school, Little Truants. This is called Little Truants from the Seven Descriptive Pieces by Florence Price. And this was composed in 1927. chromatic harmony I and mean, it has some influence of 1920s jazz and then there's another one they have, they have really fun titles this is the second one it's called two busy little hands
2009, this giant collection of work by Florence Price was found in an abandoned house on the outskirts of St. Anne, Illinois. This abandoned, dilapidated house had a huge collection of manuscripts by Florence Price that had never been published during her lifetime. They were donated to the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville, their, their music library. They sat there for a few years, but now they are all being published and they're available for purchase thanks to the work of musicologist John Michael Cooper. John Michael Cooper has been partnering with G. Shermer. John Michael Cooper puts the music into music notation software and then G. Shermer publishes them. I got a phone call from the um, Center of Black Music Research from Morris Fibbs. And he asked me and invited me to take a look at the um, concerto. The concerto had to be reconstructed because at the time there was no orchestral parts. When, when I looked at the score and, and started working with it, I began to realize this is a very different construction. The orchestra had at least 50% of the melodic content. And there was a, a back and forth. Piano had something, now the orchestra. And I had to adjust my thinking because uh, I wasn't used to having to listen to the orchestra as in response but just that they were being supported. I had to become much more aware of that play, that, that give and take, just like uh, the call and response that, that is rooted in the spiritual.
piano organ were her primary instruments, but she had also studied violin. We have the concerto in one movement for piano, which is from 1934, violin concerto number one from 1939, and violin concerto number two in 1952. Number two, that one really threw me for a loop when I first listened to it, because just for comparison with the concerto in one movement, both of these are in one movement, but the piano concerto is clearly delineated within like the three sections that we expect from a concerto where we have like the first one where it very solemn minor mode a lot of virtuosic piano passages we go into the lyrical middle movement and then we have a very energetic again juba-esque final movement with the violin concerto number two, she doesn't do that. How I hear and how organizing it is it's four sections. We hear the same structural melodic material four different times, but it doesn't always come back in the same way. We have like a primary theme. We have a gorgeous secondary theme that again reappears, but sometimes the orchestra has it, sometimes and while the violinist is doing a bunch of crazy 16th note passages up on the E string. Sometimes we have the secondary theme being performed by someone in the woodwinds while the violinist is again doing a lot of really virtuosic stuff. What I really like about the second violin concerto, and this is what um, kind of facilitated the direction I'm taking within the dissertation is uh, instead of describing the form as experimental, even though in terms of what we expect from concertos, I do think it is, that I also saw it as her drawing upon standards of form from from the African-American folk genres she engages with, specifically Negro, Negro spirituals and how a lot of the performances of that, when it's not in the concert spiritual context, but like in choral contexts and whether that's like on the concert stage or on a church sanctuary that you have the use of repetition where you hear the melody over and over and over again. But textually, there are moments of interjection of cries and hollers and variants in the texture, sometimes even the melody itself or how the melody appears are standard in performances of spirituals Price utilizes in the texture of the second violin concerto. With these concertos, they really do show her exploration of the standards of form in the concerto and deciding where she's going to kind of play with those standards or inject totally different set of standards, but still can combine it with elements of, of the concerto. Like, okay, here's the main thing. Here's the secondary thing that as classical listeners, you can latch on to almost immediately and still feel familiar while still feeling challenged by what you're hearing. Yeah. So as more of her music becomes available for public consumption, especially, you know, um, through recordings, uh, I think that listeners will hear that Price was far more than uh, what the industry often pigeonholes her as, which is someone who, um, you know, expressed her African-American identity and that was kind of her main uh, focus. I think that was one of her central focuses. But I mean, like most composers, over the course of her career, 
she was developing and creating an individual voice that we can only discover, I think, through exposure to the wide range of her repertoire. And so, you know, this to me is one of the things that makes her output so fascinating is how varied it is that, um, you know, if, if an organization is trying to program music uh, that has a certain sound, they can find that, um, you know, in terms of a, a kind of aesthetic that harkens back, say, to the Harlem Renaissance, they can certainly find that in Price's music uh, as the great Price scholar Ray Linda Brown has shown five folk songs in counterpoint. And then there's a parallel piece to that called uh, Negro folk songs in counterpoints. These are two separate pieces. Those moments in those strike me as very modernist. I mean, they're dissonant, uh, very, um, you know, rhythmically exciting and, and kind of varied. Um, and they, they, you know, I wouldn't call it high modernism with a sort of capital M because it's not, you know, super out there, but it's definitely um, challenging music that at the same time is drawing from some of these same folk inspirations. Um, because anything, anything that can be done to show how a composer is multidimensional, that, that's doing more justice to their output, you know, no matter who they are. longest time I'd always thought about modernism in the vein of Schoenberg or Stravinsky, where it's very much this, okay, we're going to break with these presidents of genre or tonality or these different directions. But what Price's music and the concerto specifically have shown for me is that for a lot of Black modernists, at least in the early 20th century, like once we get to post-World War II, that, that kind of takes on a different creative template. What Price was doing was, at least what I see happening in music, is this very conscious construction of a classical tradition. For a lot of them, they were aware, like, oh, we need to repair these, these connections between African-American culture and African culture. And then on top of that, we also have to establish and formalize what an African-American concert tradition looks like and contains. Composers and musicians within her community, not only in Little Rock, but especially in Chicago, the National Association of Negro Musicians, or NAM, for them, it was the spiritual that was the folk genre that Black composers needed to utilize to create this African-American or this Black concert tradition so we get outside the contiguous United States. And I think, too, this focus on genres that 
were developed in the enslavement period was also part of the ideology of New Negro modernists, where it's like looking at the very specific cultural material from the enslavement period and thinking about, okay, how can we not only continue to honor and engage with the tributary so that it's not forgotten, but also how can it be recontextualized into what we consider to be like the Black modern person or the Black modern expression of, of today. but to be able to look at the scores and to look at the letters. This is what was amazing. There were so many letters that she personally wrote to different conductors to ask for an opportunity. For example, um, letters to Kusevitsky, excuse me, with the BSL. She wrote five letters asking that her music be considered. And at one point in one of those letters, she basically was saying, I don't write frivolous, you know, fluffy, I'm using my words, fluffy music. I I write with um, substance. And I hope that you will consider, though I have two things against me, I'm Black and I'm a woman. I hope that you will still consider taking a look at my scores. Price and her contemporaries also very aware of the stylistic stereotypes that were often applied to them too, where again, writing within the standard genres of classical repertoire, but don't always get the opportunity to get it performed or even for performers to get gigs or join orchestras because they see a black person with an instrument and be like, oh, so you must be in jazz. And again, this is 1910s, 1920s. And, and that's partially the reason why Mil- Will Marion Cook even started to go more into to musical theater. But there was an arrangement done of one of her, I think it was a kestrel piece, a band piece, not even skirting the line, but leaning too far into like, okay, no, this is now a jazz composition rather than an arrangement of my piece. And she like wrote a letter saying like, you know, I'm not happy about this arrangement. We really need to right the wrong that is the fact that she was ignored for so many years. She did get some recognition during her lifetime. She had to really fight for it, but she did. Her first symphony was premiered by the Chicago Symphony. She wrote three more symphonies after that. The second and third were ignored by the Chicago Symphony, and the fourth was discovered in that house in 2009, so it wasn't even published. To this day, no major symphony orchestra has recorded her four symphonies. And that's just unbelievable to me because it's incredible music. I highly encourage your listeners to go listen to her first symphony. It's beautiful and there's nothing like it.
composers who were on the faculties at historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. And these are musical spaces where Price's music, particularly her vocal music, was never was never forgotten or was never not performed. And so the music of Price's that has always been in the living repertoire, which is primarily this vocal music, uh, has been hugely inspirational for any number of, of composers and vocalists. And the more kind of oral histories and, and commentary that's come out in the last uh, like two to three to five years um, from older African-American musicians, they, they have expressed very interesting uh, relationships with Florence Price on this basis. Um, and so some of these older musicians are very excited to hear uh, this other Price music now, whereas only you know a handful or so of pieces had been available or widely known uh, prior to that. In 2017, I started working at Fisk University, which is an HBCU in Nashville, Tennessee. I was really struck by the fact that the students at Fisk were performing composers that I had never heard of. I thought that I knew all of the standard repertoire and when what composers are considered to be standard. So I started seeing all these names that I had never seen before. And I learned that these were all black composers and they had been left out of my own education. Dean Smith-Moore, H.T. Burley, Leslie Adams, Florence Price, of course. There's so many. And every time I do another internet deep dive researching black composers, I find even more that I didn't previously know about. There's so much repertoire out there that really doesn't receive a lot of attention. And that is starting to change. There have been people doing this work long before me. There was a Florence Price Renaissance in the 90s. And I'm very grateful and very indebted to those who have gone before me in advocating for this repertoire. That movement has been growing and growing and gaining in momentum. And now there are a number of us. The main thing that we hear about is she was the first Black woman to have a symphony performed by a major orchestra. And to me, when I first read that, I'm thinking like, oh, okay, you know, that's great. And she's the only person I see, the only face I see. But then as you read further, and that's what one thing I really love about Raylinda Brown's biography on her is just how she shows Price was not only part of a network, but part of a community of Black folk that studied and listened to classical music and that it spanned the entire nation. And again, you know, this is just being like specific to the United States, although this would be like a global phenomenon, but I think it is very, very important, at least until Florence Price gets better known within the white mainstream, that we recognize that she was one of many. A lot of what Price was able to do, it would have been much, much harder for her to do if not for the support of folks like Estella Bonds, who was a major artistic figure in Black Chicago during this time. And Price and her daughters even stayed with her and Margaret at least once because they were in financial straits and they had nowhere to go. So Estella was like, you know, y'all come in here. Estella's house was a, a salon, a revolving door of like so many major 
black figure like Langston Hughes and Marian Anderson. And it's was just, and it's just like a, a hotbed of creativity. Maude Robert George helped underwrite the Chicago Symphony's performance of Price's First Symphony. If George didn't underwrite it, would that, would that piece have even been programmed? It's some ways seem like very basic methods of support Price received from other Black people just have major resonance because it, it just shows how essential their help and their belief in her work and their support was needed for her music to get out beyond Black Chicago. I think she opened the door for a lot of uh, female composers. Tanya Leon is one composer that I had the opportunity to meet actually when I was living in Spain. Her music is becoming more and more um, popular and performed. You have other composers, maybe not as well known, Letty Beckham Austin, there's um, Dolores White. There are from uh, older period, Undine Smith Moore. I think she is an extremely valuable and significant name in the world of composition and in particular as a female composer. One of the fundamental changes that needs to happen in the classical music industry is greater attention to um, the human side of music making, okay, broadly speaking. Now, when one simply places music by a composer on a program and there's none or very little, like no framing or very little framing to draw people into the human interest behind why that music is on the program, then you've really lost out on these opportunities to engage people, particularly newer audiences, with the compelling stories that drove creativity in the first place. Um, you know, one of the greatest things about classical music and, and really almost any music, I mean, think about popular music too, just, I mean, country music, whatever it is, it's like that human story behind the thing that draws you in. Uh, but classical organizations historically, I mean, for the past 150 years, have done a very poor job of making it about the individuals. Um, so many organizations say that we're here for the art. And like, okay, but you're also working in a community. Uh, your musicians are a part of that community. And so as programmers or organizations think about ways to become more equitable, um, to change the status quo, for instance, it's not just about putting folk, different folks onto a program. I mean, that's part of it. That's a small and not insignificant part 
Um, but the bigger thing is knowing what can be done to engage with audiences, um, with the music, but also with the stories. Part of a, a wholesale change of the industry requires thinking about the stories, how those stories come into being and what stories will really matter to uh, patrons and audiences. She writes, or when she when she was writing, she was telling her stories. As an example, in the Land of Cotton Suite, well, she didn't live that far from land that was once plantation scenery, if you will. In fact, I think there was a cotton field not far, and so she's literally drawing the picture of the scene that she saw. That's her. That was her life, and that was her history. So it's it's an education. It's an education that sometimes there are no words to describe, but with music and or pictures. And as I I do believe her music was like looking at a picture. The manuscript was her canvas. She was telling the stories. has been an independent production produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams. Check us out at sonosphere.podcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes and check us out on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.